0: Hello and welcome to Life Sentences, the podcast about biography. I'm Caroline Baum. This episode was produced in collaboration with Newcastle Writers' Festival and I'd like to thank them for the opportunity. Today I'm thrilled to be talking to the author of one of the most acclaimed literary biographies of recent times, Heather Clarke. Her new biography of poet Sylvia Plath is called Red Comet, The Short and Blazing Art of Sylvia Plath. In it, she does a phenomenal job of refocusing and rebalancing previous biographers' obsession with Plath's death by suicide at the age of 30. Instead, we get a close-up focus on her ambition, her prodigious and often groundbreaking output, the key relationships that shaped her as a woman and an artist, from her maligned mother Aurelia and husband, poet Ted Hughes, to her friends and even her psychiatrist. And Clarke shines a fresh light on the themes and symbolism that give Plath's work such enduring power as a poet and as the author of her novel The Bell Jar. Clark's take is a refreshing riposte to the mawkish fascination with Sylvia as a tragic figure. It's incredibly granular in its detail, sometimes giving the reader a day-by-day account, sourcing corroboration from many of the key people in Plath's life. The picture that emerges is full of empathy, but by no means uncritical. I spoke to Heather Clark via Zoom at her home in Chappaqua, in upstate New York. When we started, it was light in her airy conservatory, but by the time we finished, it was dark. I began by asking her about a specific challenge that she set herself during the eight years she spent writing about Plath's life.
1: So I made a mental note to myself as I was embarking upon this project not to use words like fragile, doomed, hysterical... Uh, words that, that conveyed a sense of, yeah, I mean, fragility and passivity and pathology, frankly, because part of the reason I wrote this biography was because I felt Plath had been pathologized in previous biographies and that her name had become synonymous with madness and tragedy. So I really wanted to try my best to avoid those kinds of cliched words um, but but sometimes even I had to stop myself or catch myself because uh, I, I, the the myth is so strong <laughs> that that I would sometimes fall into what my editor called the Plath trap <laughs> and and <laughs> and she would she would flag something right on the manuscript if I had I don't think I'd used those words but if I had implied something like that uh, she would she would flag that and I'd say oh my goodness how could I have done that but I think that 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 the idea of Plath as a sort of doomed or hysterical or neurotic writer is just it's so strong in popular culture and that that was part of what I was trying to push back against in this biography.
0: I mean, I think this is a very noble endeavor, and I understand it from the feminist perspective of wanting to kind of celebrate her as a professional woman of extraordinary achievement and enduring significance. But how does one depathologize and desensationalize a famous young artist whose life is characterized by mental health issues, suicide attempts, and work that is often dark and full of dread and death and loss?
1: Yes, it was, it was very difficult. I felt like I was sailing between Scylla and Charybdis often because I, I didn't want to sensationalize the mental illness and the suicide and those sort of darker aspects of her life uh, that, that I think are often the first things that people learn about Sylvia Plath, frankly. And, but I also didn't want to, to whitewash those things and <laughs> and to pretend that they they didn't affect her and uh, that her depression didn't affect her and, and just sort of minimize that. And so it, it was this um, fine line to thread because I, I do think that her depressive episodes... I mean, I think depression killed Sylvia Plath. And uh, so I, I certainly don't want to pretend that this wasn't a, a huge part of her life that she struggled with but on the other hand I think that society loves the spectacle of a woman falling apart and that is what that sells movies it sells books and and I think when Plath wrote Lady Lazarus I mean I almost read her poem Lady Lazarus as a as a comment on this idea of of the spectacle of the woman falling apart. Because in that poem, you have a speaker who performs another suicide for what she calls the peanut-crunching crowd. And, uh, and so I always think that Plath is kind of turning the mirror back on us as, as voyeurs. She was actually quite prescient in that poem. So it, it was always difficult. And this balancing these two issues in my mind, uh, every time I sat down to write, I I thought about this. It was one of the the most pressing um, most pressing issues, really, for me was was again how to how to be honest and forthright about the mental illness without making it the whole story, without making it front and center, without pathologizing her.
0: You show us that when she was alive, she was alive one hundred and fifty percent. I mean, she <laughs> yeah. had such a huge appetite for every aspect of life, that her vitality is a really strong force, I
1: think, in your book. Well, good, because that was one of the aspects of Sylvia Plath that I wanted to showcase. And uh, I, I don't know that we, we've we had enough of that, because to me, she's such a cerebral writer. She's such a witty writer. She's funny. Uh, her humor is is so often underestimated i think or not appreciated especially in the bell jar so to me she's someone who is so alive and that is part of the irony i think <laughs> when when we think about plath as this sort of avatar of darkness and, and doom and uh, i think it was maggie nelson said to be called the sylvia plath of something is a bad thing right? You you don't want to be called the Sylvia Plath up. <laughs> and I was sort of trying to to change that. And I have to pay homage here to Hermione Lee, because her biography of Wolf, Virginia Wolf, I thought it was a blueprint for me, in a sense, because here was another writer who had suffered from mental illness, who had died by suicide. Um, and so a lot of similar issues going on. And uh, Hermione Lee just wrote a, a brilliant erudite biography that did not pathologize Wolfe's li- life and took her seriously as a writer. So, um, so I was sort of looking to, to that. And of course, Hermione Lee's quote that if I could have had it pinned up on a bulletin board in front of me while I was writing this book, I would have. If I had a bulletin board <laughs> in front of me, which I don't, but she says that Women writers whose lives involve mental illness, self-harm, suicide, sexual abuse are often treated biographically as victims or psychological case histories first and professional writers second. And that quote was so important to me as I wrote this book about Plath, and I really tried to treat her as a professional writer first, in Hermione Lee's words.
0: Let me ask you, Heather, about the access that you had, because in the past, biographers have come up against the various states that are involved in the custodianship of the Plath papers, and that has often been a very adversarial and very difficult path you seem to have had a kind of charmed access to anything and everything that you wanted so can you tell me about how that was negotiated how the trust was built up and what you got access to that people have not seen before?
1: Well I think the changing of the guard in terms of the estate helped quite a bit. Uh, Owen Hughes was Ted Hughes's sister and for years she basically ran the Plath estate. Ted Hughes was the owner of of the Plath estate and her copyright, but Olwyn managed it for him. And people had a really hard time getting permission to quote Plath's work, especially if they were feminist scholars, because by the 1970s, Ted Hughes had a very difficult relationship, to put it mildly, with uh, the feminist movement, and he would sometimes be heckled at readings when he went to America. He ended up deciding not to go to America anymore to give readings. He he called America enemy country at one point. So there was a very fraught relationship there you know, between Ted Hughes and the women's movement in the years after Plath's death. And Olwen Hughes was sort of you know, Ted Hughes's greatest protector. And uh, so it was it was complicated. And once the estate passed to Frida Hughes, who is Ted and Sylvia's daughter, um, well, Frida is the one who allowed all of Sylvia Plath's surviving letters to be published recently. So there's there's simply more openness um, now, I think, surrounding Plath's work. It's just it's more accessible for everyone. Frankly, we have about three thousand letters now that were published in 2018. I knew that those letters would be published when I started my biography. So that was a lot of new material, right, that I I knew was coming down the pike. And uh, so I knew I would benefit from that. And I also received permission to scan all of Plath's unpublished papers uh, from Frida Hughes in the various archives that hold her work. And also, the, this was serendipity, but a brand new archive came to light in 2019. And this was the archive of a woman who had started a Plath biography in the 1970s, early 70s, and she never finished it. Her name's Harriet Rosenstein. And uh, there were all kinds of, <laughs> it was like a treasure trove of of anecdotes and interviews and um, all kinds of, new information that I think helped us shed a lot of light on on plath, her writing, her uh, medical treatment things like that and all of these people had been interviewed as I said in the early 70s so their memories were much fresher and so this Rosenstein uh, archive was was a, just enormously important to me and and uh, so I was the first it was just luck but I was the first biographer to be able to use information from that archive. And I, you know, it just deepened our, our understanding of who Sylvia Plath was.
0: At the same time, you do acknowledge the benefit of the sort of so-called Plath biography industry, mm-hmm. as Janet Malcolm <laughs> refers to yes. it, in terms of the writings of people like Paul Alexander, for example, who interviewed Dr. Boycher is yes. that how you say her yes. name? Yes. Who was Sylvia Plath's psychiatrist yes. and is a very important character yes. in your book. So obviously, there is a great merit, isn't there, in not being first.
1: Yes. And I, I mean, I, I benefited enormously from previous biographies. I mean, not all of them took the point of view that I <laughs> would have taken, but I owe a great debt to them. And they did this work before the Internet. I mean, the <laughs> so the Internet has made research a lot easier. So I'm sort of in awe of, of what some of these biographers accomplished uh, in the in the early days, and, and absolutely uh, those people who are no longer with us, uh, but who were interviewed in previous biographies, I mean that that helped me enormously. Um, I don't know. I go back and forth because I think mine was the eleventh biography of Sylvia Plath. Last time I counted, it was number eleven. And I used to be so terrified of writing the first biography because I you know I discussed this with my biographer friends. And I said, oh, I could never do that because it would, it would just be so much work. And, and now I, now that I have written the 11th biography, I sort of think that there would be an incredible freedom actually in writing the first biography because I was often reacting to to other other people's narratives and stories and trying to offer a corrective and I just thought oh how I read I read the uh, the Adrian Rich biography recently which was the first and I, I just envied her I just thought oh how wonderful to be able to to forge your own path and, uh, and I thought oh if only Sylvia had had this kind of a biographer first right she, you know um, Hillary Holiday wonderful biographer so um so I guess I go back and forth with that whether whether I was I benefited from the previous 10 biographies or, or did, it, did it kind of um, slow me down or push me in a direction I maybe wouldn't have gone? I don't know, but it's something I think about. Well, I mentioned
0: Janet Malcolm there. Now, of course, Janet Malcolm famously calls biographers burglars. Yes. And I was just wondering, when you are thinking about a biography in terms of material evidence, is there ever anything off limits to you ethically? Is there anything that you ever think I can't use that? I can't do that. I can't go there.
1: Yes, there were things that I did not put in this biography um, because of that very reason. Yes, there are things that <laughs> I just just you know I thought this is going to affect people who are still alive, and yeah, there were there are definitely things that I left out. So so absolutely, uh, and and even. <sighs> Quoting Plath's letters to her psychiatrist, those are very intimate letters toward the end of her life. And her, she just writes to Dr. Boycher in a completely different voice than she writes to anyone else. Those are the most raw, honest, vulnerable letters that Sylvia Plath ever wrote uh, as her marriage is breaking down and just, you know, her heartbreak about Ted Hughes and um, the, in her last letter, this she she says... She basically tells Dr. Boycher that she's thinking about committing suicide. And so, um, but, but those, those were published. Frida Hughes had made the decision to publish them. So for me, you know, I thought, well, they're out there. So I, I quoted from them. So does that mean, Heather, that you would ever
0: consider writing what's called an authorised biography, that you would be prepared to stick to guidelines that were imposed on you by the estate of someone that you really
1: wanted to write about? I am actually, I I have approached a literary estate recently. Uh, There is a biography that I would like to write, and I'm not sure it would be authorised, but I need to know at the outset, before I commit 10 years of my life (laughs) uh, to a project, uh, whether or not I will likely have permission to quote from their work and whether or not I I simply have the blessing. Uh, I think that psychologically, if I know it's going to be a fight going forward and that I will not be able to easily quote um, the work, then uh, that, that would be tough for me, I think. Um, but in, in, there are ways, for example, some of my friends are writing biographies and they reach legal agreements with the estate before they start writing. And the estate has some, uh, the, you know, the estate can, can read the manuscript once or twice uh, and make and correct any factual errors, but don't necessarily get to change interpretations and things like that so there are there are legal agreements that biographers and estates can work out that i think are fair to both parties so so that's that's a way to write a biography that's not sort of you're not writing exactly what the estate wants you to write you do have intellectual freedom but you're also i mean both sides are kind of go into it with their eyes open i guess
0: Obviously, biography has become a very, very hot issue in the last few weeks and months because of the debacle around the Philip Roth biography. And one of the aspects of that that perhaps hasn't had as much attention as the others is the idea that one biographer gets access to the material and then in the case of Philip Roth, in agreement with his agent and his executor, Andrew Wiley, the decision is apparently that the the papers are there burnt or some of the papers are then burnt. Now, Ted Hughes burnt uh, Sylvia's last journal. I was just wondering whether you could comment on the idea of one biographer getting access to very, very significant material for research and then that material being burnt by the estate or by its executor.
1: Oh, I. Uh, <laughs> I know that's what Philip Roth wanted them to do, and and yet I feel that that material is so important for researchers moving forward. Um, oh God, it would be just a a terrible pity if it, if that material is burned. On the other hand, I. <laughs> I understand if people say, "Well, that's what he wanted; that that was his directive, and that should be respected." Uh, but but I think literary history is full of these <laughs> these precedents where the writer says, "Burn my papers," and and the the executor decides not to. I think Kafka is a famous example of that, right? Uh, so so it's been done before. <laughs> uh, I hope I hope they don't burn the papers, and I hope more scholars and biographers are given access to them besides Blake Bailey.
0: And I note that in your biography of Sylvia Plath, you sort of hold out a shred of hope that some of the papers that we currently think may have been burnt <laughs> by Ted Hughes may in fact resurface. I
1: I am holding out hope. Uh, I think that her last novel, what what she wrote of it, is probably out there somewhere. I mean, Ted Hughes told a lot of people that that those who came to visit him at Court Green in the days and weeks after Plath's death, uh, he said a lot of things went missing. Ooh, And so I just I just have a hard time believing that <laughs> that, that that novel is is gone. Um, I, I, I don't know, but I do hold out hope.
0: I want to know what you learned about Sylvia Plath that surprised you during the eight years that you worked on this book.
1: I think I was so shocked by how sexist a world she lived in and it shouldn't have come as a surprise to me because it was the 1950s and in America and we all have a sense of what that was like uh, for women. But just reading the kind of journal entries and newspaper articles and the commencement speech... Given by Adley Stevenson, where he told all of these Smith graduates in 1955 that that their destiny was to become basically humble housewives. That was his phrase, and that they should support their men, and they can do it with a baby on their lap and a can opener in the other hand, and and just you know, this is what the commencement speaker is telling the, some of the most brilliant women in America, it's graduating class of Smith College in 1955. And it's just, if that's the message that these women are receiving, then <laughs> what hope did, did anyone have really? Um, and, and things, stories that Sylvia herself wrote about in her letters and her journal. And for example, she, she applied for a, a Woodrow Wilson fellowship and she went to Harvard for an interview, and she said that she just faced this wall of men. <laughs> and she was used to women professors. You know, she's from a all-women's college where she was the star student. She was really nurtured at Smith. And, and so she gets to Harvard and sees these very skeptical men. And they just kept asking her about uh, her plans for marriage and children. <gasps> and basically, like, well, why should we give you this fellowship? You're just going to get married and have babies. She was more worried about them... Uh, asking about her mental illness and her, her time at McLean and that kind of thing. So, so those sexist questions <laughs> didn't even really bother her, which, again, gives you a sense of, of just how bad things were, mm. that this kind of rolled off her shoulders. But you, you read this uh, description of the interview, and it's, it's like, how did she do it? How did she scale these barriers? I mean, again, I just have so much respect for her. She was a fighter. Um, in, in, in a very profound sense, and I know people don't necessarily think of Sylvia Plath that way because of the way she died. But you know when you say what surprised you the most about her, it was that kind of fighting spirit, that determination and that iron will. And it wasn't always pretty. I mean she, she made some enemies and uh, you know ambition in women was not really seen as uh, something good in the
0: 1950s. And I mean, I think one of the things that's shocking about that world that you describe is it didn't just apply in academia, but the world of publishing was so clubby and masculine as well. I mean, (laughs) even in the face of her brilliance. Um, I wanted to ask you, we were talking before about Hermione Lee as a kind of mentor or role model. Um, There's a moment when Hermione Lee, I think, says to her husband, I killed Virginia today. And I have to say that when it got to that point in your book, I delayed reading the final chapters for about 10 days. I just couldn't. I knew what was coming, and I was so dreading it. And you go into it in such extraordinary forensic detail. What was it like for you, Heather, writing those final chapters? I'm imagining you possibly writing them in tears.
1: They were, without a doubt, the hardest parts of the book to write, I it, it was very it was extraordinarily difficult to get the right tone I I guess um I I wanted to approach her last days with the appropriate sense of compassion uh but also intimacy um I guess I wanted to give people an understanding of What would lead her to do that? And I I felt like I understood when I got to that section, uh, and especially because it was very clear to me, not only from her last letter, but other reasons, it was very clear to me that she was terrified of being institutionalized. And in those circumstances, um, if one feels one is losing one's mind and one is going to be put into a mental hospital. And again, this wasn't going to be McLean, right? In London, this was not going, she was not going to be picked up in a limousine uh, and driven to the poshest mental hospital in America, where she had stayed in 1953. This was going to be something different. She didn't have the money to pay for a private institution and she wasn't about to ask her mother or her benefactress Olive Proudie for, for that. So she, you know, she just, she saw a very grim future for herself. Um, and so there was a sort of lucidity in that sense. Um, and again, I don't, I don't want to romanticize it at all. She was gripped. She was in the throes of depression. But I, I guess I just wanted to, to help the readers understand, uh, this this terror of being institutionalized. This terror of What what she might endure if she is institutionalized again? Shock therapy. She she was deathly afraid of shock therapy. She had uh, endured it in 1953. Uh, She'd had a botched experience. She had uh, received botched treatment, and I I think that was traumatic for her. So there were, and she was on all kinds of um, (laughs) medications that I learned more about from the Rosenstein files. And and I think, as in Virginia Woolf's case, I think it's hard to separate um, the depression from the medication and was the medication making the depression worse and and what was that relationship because a lot of these drugs, their interactions were not well understood at the time. So so there are these other questions, I think, surrounding uh, those final days that I I guess I just wanted to, those issues to be in people's minds as as they read.
0: Well, they, they were, and um, you wrote about it incredibly movingly, but at the same time with a kind of very calm detachment, which in a way sort of amplified the tragedy and I you know I have to use that word yes, at this it, point. it is it was. of the meticulous care with which she prepared the room sealing it off thinking about the children choreographing the act and that final interaction with the neighbor it is all just desperately sad it is um, changing gear for for a moment I'm very fascinated by the detail that you give and the portrait that you paint of the relationship between Sylvia and her mother Aurelia because her mother has come off very very badly Um, in Sylvia's work and in the sort of mythology around Sylvia, the mother is kind of demonised, really, and you give a sort of correcting perspective on Aurelia. But at the same time, I did wonder, you know, there's a moment, I think, when Sylvia has gone to summer camp and she's writing to her mother three times a day. I mean, in common sort of jargon of self-help language, would we say that they were codependent?
1: Probably, I mean, I, it it was a very complicated relationship, and you know, I asked some of her friends this a similar question. Friends that I interviewed, and they told me, "Oh, we we wrote our mothers like that all the time. We we wrote to our mothers every day from college because it was too expensive to make phone calls, and uh, so, <laughs> so they I, they didn't think that that was." excessive but uh I I suppose I did um I I really I mean it was another case of of, of kind of finding that balance because on the one hand she has been so demonized and I went into this project with sort of one one ideological sense that I was not going to blame one particular person for her suicide because I didn't think that was fair so I didn't want to quote unquote blame Sylvia's mother, and uh, and yet I it was a difficult relationship, and Sylvia did feel pressure from her mother to achieve and succeed, and her mother thought that she was inspiring Sylvia when she <laughs> brought up her, her great grades and all of her prizes and publications, and then you know Sylvia understands that as pressure. So it's it's this sort of it's it's a difficult cycle, I think.
0: Um, It's strange, isn't it? Because it's like a kind of chemical combustion that happens between them, like they're two elements that just (laughs) cannot help but sort of irritate each other and yet a lot of the time I feel that you really validate and dignify uh, Aurelius' considerable sacrifice for Sylvia, the way she was always able to find money to send to her, even when she had none, and the way she was so proud and encouraging of a daughter that she had almost lost to um, suicide one time. So, you know, I think she she really gets a raw deal from her daughter.
1: Yeah, you know, and I I get into this in the book a bit about the, the psychiatric biases against mothers at the time. And when Sylvia was at McLean, uh, some of the psychiatrists there, maybe it was earlier when she was at Newton-Wellesley Hospital, but some of the psychiatrists were questioning her about her potty training of Sylvia, you know, this sort of thing. And, (laughs) and, and just this like this Freudian (laughs) um, (laughs) bias against mothers. And you can really see that in, in some of the, the psychiatry that Plath is, is exposed to. And, um, and also just the stigma against uh, the stigma surrounding mental illness is so strong Mm. in the early fifties. And Plath comes from an aspirational Germanic, Family and one of Plas' neighbors, uh, who I interviewed, he told me that he had memories of his mother driving Sylvia and Aurelia to uh, get shock treatment. At this particular hospital called Valley Head, and and how she would come back, and she would just Sylvia would just seem like a zombie, and so different from the Sylvia that he was used to seeing, who was so energetic, and she loved to to tan, so to, to, to sun tan out in the driveway and things like that. And he said, you know, having someone like that who was going, who was getting shock treatment, going to a mental hospital, it, it brought shame to the entire neighborhood. Wow. And he said it was it was. She, it was almost like, you know, she was untouchable. It was just, there was so much shame surrounding her situation. And so I think that, was, that, that these women didn't have the, the language to really talk about mental illness, even, uh, in 1953. But one woman who did
0: seem to be able to cut through and who also could see past Sylvia's facade and who had a consistently positive relationship, I think, with her was her benefactor, Mrs. Prouty, who was her patron. And and, I mean, I say consistently positive, but even she gets some of Sylvia's sort of scathing barbs at a certain point. But on the other hand, Mrs. Prouty sticks by Sylvia all the way. And when she hears a kind of um, giddiness in Sylvia's tone in her letters, she recognizes it for what it is as a kind of you know the up swing yeah. of mania, yeah, and she always knows how to kind of compensate for that and warn Sylvia not to expect too much, yes, so can you talk a little bit about Mrs. Prouty because she's a fantastic character?
1: Yes, I think I say in the book at one point that if if there is an unsung hero in Sylvia Plath's life, it is Olive Higgins Prouty because. She played such an important pastoral and financial role in Sylvia's life. Um, She was the one who more or less bankrolled Sylvia Plath's education at Smith College. She paid for Sylvia Plath's treatment at McLean Hospital, which, as I mentioned before, was a very expensive private hospital in Belmont, Massachusetts, that catered to the wealthy and uh and then continued to support plath throughout her her years at cambridge uh even when she married ted hughes olive Prouty would send plath checks all the time um (laughs) she sent her checks to buy baby clothes and buy a baby carriage and and it was just non-stop and then i she she would um send her little morale boosting checks so saying oh go out and buy yourself a nice outfit things like that and 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 she was a writer. She had made a lot of money writing um, novels. And and Sylvia could be a bit nasty sometimes about the um, the the fiction. And I think at one point she compared <laughs> it to a soap opera novel, that kind of thing. But um, but I think she at the end of the day she was enormously grateful to Olive Proudy. What I was curious about was what you
0: thought of Sylvia's capacity for deep, intimate female friendship with women of her own age? Because at Smith, she does have roommates, she does have friends. But because she is, I have to say, quite predatory when it comes to pinching girlfriends' men, their boyfriends, from right under their noses, yeah. very overtly, yeah. Yeah. you know, does it completely guilt-free. Do you think that she had the capacity for real female friendship?
1: I think she did with women who posed no literary or intellectual threat to her. Women who were not her competitors in any way. She had close, a very close friendship with uh, a woman named Marcia Brown, who was her Smith roommate. And that, that friendship continued throughout her life. And, and Marsha never became a writer. You know, she had, she married and she had children and it seemed to be the the one really easy going relationship that Sylvia had. Um, and, then, and that, that stayed consistent throughout her life. But yeah, with with a lot of other women, she would meet other women who were aspiring writers. And it always seemed to, to fizz, either fizzle out or end in this big fight. <laughs> uh, she called she sort of referred to these women as her doppelgangers. And it's quite sad to me actually because mm. I think that there were just so few opportunities for women that she did feel like she had to compete. And and even Adrian Rich, she said this about meeting uh, Anne Sexton as I, I just learned from the Adrian Rich biography. Adrian Rich said, "I kept hearing about this woman named Anne Sexton and, and and I immediately became jealous. You know, who who was she?" And and I and I thought to myself that if she was going to take up space then i would i would not have that space because there was only so much space for women and so i think the same the, the same thing happened to plath uh, a bit so part of it is the again the systemic <laughs> sexism sexism that she had to deal with every day and the- and also i think when she gets to britain
0: there's this kind of cultural clash in that she appears too made up, too well-dressed, trying too hard, rather flashy. And everything about British women at that stage in the 50s is very austere yeah, and very understated. And there are codes of behavior <laughs> that she clearly doesn't yeah. get. And so women who could have been her friends there turn away from her.
1: Yeah, again, it's, it's that's part of the, um, the, the tragedy. English women seemed to want nothing to do with her um and some of the uh, american and south african and and scottish women befriended her a bit but but there were there were problems even with those friendships and she was kind of left with the men and and again this is cambridge in 1956 1955 she wanted to be one of the the top campus poets but there was no group of of women poets who would sit around at the anchor pub and and quote yates all day i mean she <laughs> she she kind of had to latch on to um, the men ted hughes and his friends they were the band of rebel poets that she 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 wanted to kind of you know circle their orbit i guess but but yeah she she
0: didn't want to circle yeah their she orbit. wanted to be she wanted to be a star <laughs> yeah, she, <laughs>
1: Yeah, well,
0: let's just talk for a moment about the men before Ted because in your book it's very clear there are men before (laughs) Ted, and then there's there are a lot of men, and I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, at one stage, she's she's dating multiple men. She's still a virgin, we find out, but she's kind of heavy petting, yeah. which is not an expression that we use right. anymore. But you know, she's going all the way except. Yes. Um, and she's seeing multiple men, and she's playing them off against each other. And she's corresponding with them. And she's visiting them in different parts of the country. And it sounds so frenzied. I wondered whether
1: you thought that she was a flirt, a tease? You know, yeah, the, the relationships were, were almost Byzantine at one point. <laughs> And and that's probably the part of the book that I cut from the most. I mean, there there was even more. There was even more that that, that did not make it into the final uh, version. Yeah, it's it's a bit overwhelming for the reader. I I think part of it is it, it has to do with her, Anxiety about finding a literary partner, about finding an, a husband who is going to respect her desire to become a great writer. And it's almost like she's trying out these guys <laughs> uh, to see if, if they will respect that. And if, and if they're strong enough to kind of meet her halfway, at least, and some of them are and some of them aren't. Richard Sassoon was her most serious boyfriend before Ted, and he, you know, I, I often wonder if <laughs> if he had not kind of uh, she deserted her. She says that was her word in in Paris during her spring break. He 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 left the city. He knew she was coming to see him, and he he took off to Spain. Uh, if that hadn't happened, I'm not, I don't know that she would have gotten together with Ted Hughes, um, because hmm. she rushed back to London into Ted Hughes's arms, uh, as she was on the rebound. So I, I, I do wonder if, if Sassoon kind of could have changed literary history in that sense. But, uh, but I think, I think that, and she, she liked sex, um,
0: she yeah. really did. And she was very proud of being sexually quite liberated. Yeah. And she refers to the tarty side of herself. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and she also dismisses um, her rival Asia as being a sort of, you know, yes, very beautiful, but kind of desiccated and very limited or straight in terms of her sexual proclivities so I mean obviously again you know in terms of talking about chemistry the combustion between her and Ted in terms of their similar libidos was extraordinary
1: yes I mean I think at one point she says we made love like giants or something like that I mean it was I yeah the the sexual chemistry was there from the moment they met and she bit his cheek and he took the head scarf off of her head and and um and she really respected him as a poet as well. And he respected her. And so that not only was there the the sexual chemistry, but at least in the beginning, well, I think actually all through the marriage, just a, a mutual respect for each other's, work and ambition and and all of that. You see
0: her more as a surrealist poet than as a purely confessional poet. I mean, yes, she writes about family, trauma, uh, marital problems, jealousy, sex, but she also writes about war and history Mm -hmm. and much bigger themes. And can you just say something about what makes her to you a surrealist as a poet?
1: Yes, I think that one of, I mean, part of the Plath myth is her her iconic status as a conf- quote-unquote confessional writer, and I, I don't, I don't want to dismiss that, but I think that she wasn't confessional necessarily in the same way that Anne Sexton and Robert Lowell were confessional. I think that Plath used uh, actually a lot of modernist techniques. Um, her poems are full of classical heroines, and she almost wants to distract us. Uh, with with these speakers who are not Sylvia Plath. I mean, even though she's writing about things like suicide and and mental illness and depression, her speakers uh, often are are very different from Plath, quote unquote Sylvia Plath. So I think uh, she was very inspired by the surrealist paintings of Giorgio de Chirico, for example, and she she wrote about his influence on poems, her poems, uh, like the Disquieting Muses. Uh, that was written after his painting. And I I actually think Edge, her last poem, was also influenced by De Chirico, uh, who had painted these really uncanny, well, I'll use the word again, disquieting, scenes of women in togas lying on bare slabs with trains in the distance. And if you look at some of these surrealist paintings, uh, you can... You can see the connections to to edge her which i think is her last poem her last great poem so um, i think she she was enormously inspired by modern art surrealist art and that that doesn't always get through (laughs) Uh, because i think the confessional label it it has the effect of making plath seem like a narcissist right that she only cares about her inner crises and that she doesn't have a political imagination and that she doesn't care about history or what's going on outside. And, and, uh, and, and, and I'm, not, I'm not making that up. A lot of critics wrote essays about her, especially in the 1970s, kind of taking on that point of view, right? That she's the sort of narcissistic confessionalist poet. So again, it was just another another way of looking at Plath, another way of kind of changing our perception of the kind of poetry she wrote.
0: What you're saying there about the way critics in the 1970s did that, I mean, that's a way of diminishing the impact of her work and relegating it to this kind of cozy little corner and making it domestic. You know, it's women's yes, poetry, isn't yes, it?
1: Yes. And I, and I should say, I, I'm not talking about feminist critics who really celebrated her work in the 70s and 80s, but people like Harold Bloom and... Um, Even Joyce Carol Oates and Elizabeth Hardwick, uh, so you know they took these kind of adversarial positions against Plath. I think Hardwick wrote an essay where she said that in the end, it's it's Plath's body there on the stage, as if Plath had had planned her suicide to be part of this grand finale. And it it just you know it's (laughs) she took her life because she was depressed. I don't I really don't think that she was performing in any sense. Um it was not performance art. And I felt I feel like sometimes her death is read through her last poem edge as almost like this this kind of grotesque performance art and I no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I guess
0: I guess. just going back to her body, though, for a moment, I mean, one thing that you can't argue with is that she definitely pioneered a particular kind of poetry about motherhood or yes. a depiction of motherhood that we had never seen in poetry before, which included miscarriage and abortion. Yes. Um, and I think it's really interesting to try and work out whether she was a feminist or not Mm. in relation to her body of work. Because, for example, her psychiatrist, Dr. Boishe, thought she was not a feminist. And yet she has become, for many women today, a sort of feminist icon. What do you think? This is such a complicated
1: question. I I think that it's obvious... Sylvia Plath died a week before The Feminine Mystique was published. Yeah. About a, about a week before that came out. And so she did not even have an understanding of the word feminism in the same sense that, that we do. And so, and she she reassured her mother that she wasn't going to be a career woman. She was really repulsed by the, the culture of spinsterhood at Newnham College, Cambridge, Uh, She could be very cruel to, quote unquote, barren women or women who had had abortions and and things. So uh, there are these things that don't quite square with Sylvia Plath, the feminist icon. And yet and yet I think her feminism was the sort that she didn't want to be told that she had to choose between having a career and having a family and that she didn't want to have to make that choice. She thought that was unfair she was very angered by the sexual double standard, so there are all the there are other parts of her life where she did have a kind of proto feminist consciousness so i and I think that the sense of anger that we see in the aerial poems where <laughs> she she kind of inscribes female anger into the poetic lexicon as she's writing about motherhood and, and uh, maternal ambivalence even, which was shocking. And maternal joy as well. But yeah, miscarriage. I mean, she read a poem about miscarriage on the BBC in 1961 and introduced that poem as very clearly a poem about miscarriage. So she embraced these public taboos and I think pushed poetry forward in that sense. So I really give her a lot of credit for that. And, I, you know, Adrian Rich she, before she had this reawakening as a feminist, I mean, she was very much like Plath. She, she had three children. She was a housewife. Um, she was quite happy to take on that domestic role for several years. And then, of course, second wave c- feminism comes along and she's completely transformed by that. So I do sometimes wonder if Plath had lived through second wave feminism, what, you know, would she have gone in the same... Direction as Adrian Rich. It, I wonder, I don't know.
0: No, none of us do. Oh. It is it is very, <laughs> no. very um, tantalising to think about that. Do you think that one of the problems for her was this desire that she had? You know, we were talking before about how when she was alive, she had this vitality and appetite for everything. Do you think that part of the problem, though, was a desire for perfectionism and that she was straining to be a domestic goddess, a perfect mother and wife, a brilliant writer? She had social ambitions to run a glittering salon she yes. liked the idea of fame. <laughs> she pursued the idea of fame, you know, but she was doing that at the same time as she was painting Germanic sort of hearts and flowers on chairs in a house yes. in Devon that had no yes. heating and was yes. impossible yes. to run. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was the the pace of accomplishment is dizzying. I just wanted to stop her, to kind of grab her by the shoulders while I was writing this book and just say, just just take a break, you know, it's it's you you don't you don't have to go full speed ahead with everything. And this was part of this was part of I think why she was able to break through those gendered barriers because she just had such a strong will and determination. but but yeah, I, I think that it could also she could push herself into a corner and and you see it in her journals and her letters where sometimes she says things like, oh, God, I haven't done anything with my life. I, I haven't gotten a PhD. <laughs> that was always something. I haven't got... I need to get a PhD. I need to learn German, right? That was another perennial issue that, that she she would always bring up when she was feeling unaccomplished. So uh, even in the last weeks of her life, she's still bringing up that I I can't speak German. I've done nothing. So yeah, I, I do think that that was, that was maybe part of the depression because... When when she is brought low during these depress- depressive episodes, that's when she starts with all mm. of the self-criticism that's so just, well, it was deadly, I think.
0: Yeah, that inner voice just does not let up, does it? One of the things that you, um, I think, bring to our attention or that you highlight that maybe people weren't aware of, certainly I wasn't, is the extent to which she had a real gift for managing Ted Hughes's career. It was like she was his agent. He wanted nothing to do with the world of money. He didn't want to sully himself with any of that. And she knew exactly where to send his poems. And she kept track of all their, you know, rejections, acceptances. You you know, you didn't get this accepted here, so we'll send it over there. She was absolutely fantastic at boosting his profile. And really, I think there's one uh, point at which he says that without her, he says, I'd be fishing off a rock in Western Australia. This is because he actually had a brother here in Australia. But I mean, really, she was like kind of a rocket propeller for his career. Absolutely.
1: She knew how the game was played. He did not. Uh, he was very. And he didn't
0: want to. He and didn't he did, want yeah. to know.
1: I mean, he was very open about that, and I feel like he he always gave her credit uh, for jumpstarting his career because he was a minor poet when she met him. I mean, he'd published in college magazines, but I think she she was incredibly prescient when she read his poems in that first issue of the Saint Botolph's Review, and she had this feeling that he was going to be one of the greatest poets of his generation. And he was. And to what extent did she make him that (laughs) is is a question I think we all wonder. I think he did have the talent, of course, no doubt, but she channeled that and she Mm. got him seen (laughs) and she entered his manuscript in this very important contest sponsored by Harper Brothers Publishers. And that's how The Hawk and the Rain was published. And she sent his manuscript instead of her own, which I always marvel over that. Uh, I think she, she did put his career first. And again, she was pretty open about that. And she regretted it later, but she did. And she felt like his manuscript would win the contest and hers wouldn't. So she sent his. Um, what would have? Maybe she would have won. I don't know.
0: <laughs> the idea of a, a poet laureate, which Ted became, of course, yes, and and the idea of a public poet has kind of had a great sort of renaissance, thanks to the extraordinary performance of Amanda Gorman at the inauguration. Do you think that Sylvia would have liked a public role for herself as a poet?
1: I think she would have, actually. Uh, because she wanted to be famous, I mean, to put it in a kind of vulgar way. (laughs) Ted Hughes would maybe think that was vulgar. But um, she did. I I think she wanted public recognition. She really hungered for public recognition. And she loved reading her poems on the BBC. She was always thrilled when she received an invitation to, to read her poems and to talk about them. And she was thrilled to be on a show called The, the Poet's Voice, uh, which was public recognition of, of important modern poets. So I, I do think she would have enjoyed being um, being a kind of public poet in that sense. And I think she would have risen to the occasion. Uh, she read her poem uh, Tulips at a literary festival in London in the early 60s and she was the only woman poet who read that day <laughs> and to hear this reading she's in front of an audience and she just has such a command of that audience so when you mention amanda gorman I, I i thought back to that reading of tulips and how in control of her voice she was and um and i i think she she would have made a great public poet yeah
0: Despite being a thousand pages long, Heather Clark's writing propelled me forward with the momentum of a page-turning novel. I found reading this biography was absolutely engrossing, immersive and very moving. Critics have praised it as a significant and monumental achievement in scholarship while also being very accessible. It was recently nominated for the Pulitzer Prize thank you to my producers David Roach from Two Heads Media and Jennifer Macy. We live and work on Dharawal country and pay our respects to their elders. Music is by Blue
1: Dot Sessions.